Welcome to Speaking of MoleBio, a new podcast series about molecular biology and its trending applications in life sciences. I'm Steve Lewis. And I am Dr. Gabriel Alves. In our first season of Speaking of MoleBio, we're focusing our conversations on four exciting application areas, CRISPR cell engineering, multi-omics, exosomes, and single cell analysis. And today we're diving into multi-omics with Dr. Chris Whalen. Chris is the Director of Neuroscience and Data Science at Johnson Johnson and the Chair of the UK Biobank Pharma Proteomics Project. He's passionate about using neuroimaging, genetics and proteomics to better understand neurodegenerative and neuropsychiatric illness. We hope you enjoy our conversation. I like to think in terms of bigger picture science. So, you know, the, sometimes people have different definitions of, of what omics is or multi-omics is. So I like to think of it as the, the comprehensive assessment of a set of molecules, you know, along that process of the, the central dogma of, of biology, right? So, so going from uh, DNA to RNA to protein and then protein degradation to metabolites. So when you're attempting to, to comprehensively characterize the molecules that are involved in, in one of those steps, I guess you could call it omics, right? So, pro, you know, proteins, proteomics, you know, the, the genetics is, is, is genomics. And when you're attempting to characterize multiple steps, it's multi-omics. So I like how it's, it's looking at everything from, from the, the blueprint to the end product. How is multi-omics uh, helping advance the field, any field in science? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, cancer is a good example. And I feel like uh, as someone who works predominantly in neuroscience that we can learn a lot uh, from oncology. Um, neuroscience you know, over the last decade or two has been somewhat rigid in its definitions of, of most, uh, you know, CNS illnesses, um, something like Alzheimer's yeah. disease. I feel that that's more than one disease. Um, and the issue is, well, you know, how do you actually um, split it up into more than one disease. You can't really do it using the clinical scales. So you have, you really have to go to the underlying biology and that, that's where the multi-omics comes in. You know, you look at gene expression, um, you know, protein levels, um, obviously there's CSF proteomics as well. Um, and you know, if we start digging into that data, it can really help us subtype the kinds of conditions that we're interested in. The um, process that you follow kind of approaches the drug discovery pipeline. And I'm curious, do you start with biomarkers as kind of your initial vision for where you want to go? Do you see something in the data and that inspires um, you to target something and then maybe design a molecule um, downstream of that? Or is it a less linear process in your multi-omics approach? Yeah, that's a really fun question. And, and honestly, the answer is it depends on what stage of the drug development process you're, you're working at. Um, and it, it, it has applications across the, the spectrum of drug development. So if we start at the beginning, right, um, using multiomics, particularly genomics, so genetics, um, that has been positioned as a tool that could potentially increase the success of drug discovery of drug development there's been some you know recent studies over the last few years by companies like abvi and astrazeneca and they've taken a look at their legacy drug development pipelines and looks to see of those programs that made it to the clinic and those that didn't 
um, which had supporting evidence from human genetics and which didn't. And what I mean by that is, you know, supporting mm. evidence like a, like a GWAS association uh, with the disease that they wanted to treat at the the uh, protein product of, of the GWAS um, hit. And, you know, in, in, in most cases or, you know, tw- twice, you know, twice as likely um, those programs are going to have genetic support um, that make it to the clinic. So genomics now is being positioned as a tool that we could use to increase the success of drug discovery. So that's at the start of the development process. But then, you know, to your point about biomarkers, um, again, it depends on the, the, the use case for biomarkers. If we want to use them as sort of exploratory tools to understand disease biology, then, you know, we can, we start applying those at a pretty early stage. So let's, uh, we know about, um, amyloid and tau in Alzheimer's disease, but we know there's lots of other pathways involved in, in that disease as well. So why don't we apply multiplex proteomics and transcriptomics to learn more about those different pathways and mm-hmm. how they're up and down in Alzheimer's and that, that might be, you know, that might happen at the very beginning or, or maybe some, some point during the preclinical development of a drug. And then you get to phase one. And, and again, biomarkers are probably going to be important then in terms of, of safety monitoring, in terms of, of target efficacy. Mm. So is, is your drug actually binding the target? And then as you move forward, um, you know, even, even potentially more important uh, for uh, stratification of the patients. You know, are we getting the right patients for our clinical trials? The case of Alzheimer's disease, you have programs that target uh, tau proteins. So there's now blood tests um, that are being used to actually stratify people who, who have the, the right level of tau um, and bring those into our trials to increase the chances of success. So really, it, it, it can be applied, multi-omics can be applied at, at, at any stage of the drug development process. And it's, it's important at each stage for, for different reasons. It must be very rewarding, uh, especially working with the diseases that are uh, common and very serious. Um, schizophrenia, you mentioned, uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, but following these uh, other diseases similar to uh, bipolar disorder, how is the multiomic field helping also out these other diseases? As you're in the field, I would like to hear how is the, the these treatment and research progressing uh, for those conditions as well. There, there is a certain level of pathology that we, we can detect already. Um, we, can, we can detect the, the, the amyloid and amyloid plaques and tau tangles. Um, but as we're seeing from recent clinical trials, those proteins might not tell the entire story of that disease. There are probably other pathways at play that we might also want to be looking into for the development of new medicines. So that's where multi-omics comes in. And, you know, move, moving to other diseases, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar. I mean, I'm, I'm personally very passionate about um, one day having a blood test where that actually tells you, you know, whether you have schizophrenia or what type of schizophrenia you have. It might be a pipe dream, but I, I feel the only way that we're going to get a better understanding and better diagnosis and treatment of those diseases is to look at every aspect of those diseases using different omics approaches. So look at gene expression, look at, at protein levels, metabolite levels, um, you know, develop polygenic risk scores based on GWAS, bring it all together and just look at everything holistically and get a sense of whether we can actually subtype these illnesses and find you know, a little bit, this is a little bit of a uh, cliche at this point, but I, I really do think that multiomics is going to help us bring, come closer to precision medicine where we're finding the, the right drugs for, for the right patients at the right time. 
gene analysis, I think, is one one area I know uh, w- within our company. We we have a few um, different uh, pieces of software, data analysis tools that can help to optimize um, gene expression uh, as, as one example. But I'm curious, what uh, what technology gaps do you see right now, if any, um, to making that become a reality? Or is it more a workforce and training challenge to, to be able to tackle that multi-perspective approach? It is partially uh, a technology limitation. I mean, these technologies are incredibly exciting. We're, we're not quite at the stage where um, they're the, the, the finished product, if that makes sense. You know, in the case of proteomics, again, mm-hmm. not, not to sound like a broken record, but that's a really exciting new field that could help really bring us closer to actual actual precision medicine. Um, but we're not capturing the entire proteome yet. You know, um, with, with mass spec, you know, that's, you know, that's almost like the gold standard, the most, the most widely applied kind of multiplex proteomics, um, but it's, it's not high throughput. So there, there's issues around having, mm-hmm. you know, overcoming that and making, bringing mass spec into, into the, the, the mainstream or being more widely uh, employed on a larger number of samples. And there, there's companies working mm-hmm. on that, Biognosis and SEER and, and many others. Um, but um, in terms of the, the affinity-based techniques that I mentioned earlier, the optimer and antibody-based techniques, you know, at the moment, you know, you're going to get a, a, up to 7,000 um, proteins detected um, using those te- techniques. And the question is, you know, can we go higher? Um, what is the complete proteome in, in blood plasma, in, in blood serum? And mm-hmm. it, does that does does it look different in in CSF or in in, in brain tissue? Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions that you know a lot of smart people at these different companies are currently interrogating about. How can we make these platforms better? How can we increase our our, our coverage and make sure that we're we're capturing as comprehensive a picture of the proteome as possible? Following up, uh, where this field goes, where you think this field is going in the next ten years? I think the most obvious direction it's going to go in is, is even bigger scale. So again, with, with UK Biobank, we showed that you can do omics on a very, very large scale, but we didn't do the entirety of UK Biobank. We did 55,000 people and there's half a million people in mm-hmm. there. So we're not quite ready to get there yet, but I think in the next three or four years, we will be not just for proteomics mm-hmm. for, you know, some of these other omics technologies as well. Single cell transcriptomics has really caught on over mm-hmm. the last few years. So I think that that's going to be right. even more widely applied than it is now. Um, I think advances in machine learning are going to help us integrate everything a little better. Um, I'm currently, that that's a big area of focus for me is, you know, how do we actually um, bring together these different data sources, whether it's it's at the microscopic level with, with neuroimaging or a, a more sort of, microscopic level, you know, with, with blood proteins and how do we throw them all into an algorithm that's going to be able to pull out the most important features that are predicting your, your mm-hmm. disease or predicting the progression of your disease. Um, so I think the next probably four five, six years, maybe even 10 years are going to be focused around doing that kind of research to, to figure out, you know, what's the best way of, of, of predicting progression for disease X or just diagnosis of disease Y. And once we've done that groundwork, um, I mean, what I'd love to see when I'm in my mid forties is uh, walking into a doctor's office and actually being able to use these, these advances, these, these discoveries to, to have a diagnostic um, and, and 
have a blood test um, or, or, or a, 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 a clinical test that can actually pinpoint the, the disease you have and the subtype of the disease that you have. So mm. I think that the first part of my answer, I think that's definitely, it's happening and it will continue to happen and we will move to a much bigger scale. Second part, I don't know, that's that's a dream. I'm not, I'm not sure it will happen. I, I'm, I'm hoping it will happen. Um, so fingers crossed I can, I can, I can be one of uh, many, many, many people who can try to get it to happen. So it's almost like a systems based perspective. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of times when you talk uh, about the life sciences, you'll have somebody say, oh, I'm a molecular biologist or, oh, I'm a cellular biologist. And um, it's really interesting, especially when you mix data into the um, it, into the conversation you're almost blurring the lines and you almost have to between the disciplines to really study the whole system of what's being looked at. So um, I guess that leads me to just ask this, this general question is for people who are looking to get into the life sciences who might have that more of a analytical background or even like statistics or math or computer engineering, um, one of the the common things that that you hear for from people in in uh, Silicon Valley these days is biology is just a computational problem waiting to be solved and they say that without context of understanding necessarily how broad <laughs> life is right <laughs> essentially so I'm curious what would be in your mind a way to kind of bridge that gap I would start by not trusting what Silicon Valley will say about biology. Um, if we've learned any lessons from that, any unnamed sort of right. diagnostics companies, yeah, uh, the whole, um, <laughs> the whole, uh, you know, fake it till you make it. It doesn't work for biology. It doesn't work for medicine. And, and I think that that's been that's shown right. on a very, very high, you know, high profile. Um, um, so you need basically, you know, put very simply, you need the biologists, the scientists to be working hand in hand with the data scientists and the, the, the tech people, right? I, I think you need to bring those those kinds of expertise, expertises together. Um, you know, I, I, again, broken record, but going back to the UK Biobank project, um, that was that was set up as a, as a, a proteomics project by a consortium that was, you know, overwhelmingly geneticists right and genetics is is not proteomics they're they're different fields they're very different fields right. so um mm -hmm. you know, while setting that up and and, and leading that the, one of my you know first priorities was well you know we need to get proteomics experts into this consortium too and so i did mm. i put, put um mm. you know brad bradford gibson brad gibson from amgen he came in and he's a he's a kind of a world expert on on, on mass spec and, and proteomics in general and he's been a really important asset to that consortium i don't think it would have uh, operated as well as it did without his proteomics expertise. So uh, just to speak to your point, maybe I'm being a little over overly abstract to, in, in my answer, but I, I think if we had moved forward with that consortium as a genetics consortium doing proteomics, I don't think it would have been as su su successful. We needed to pull in mm -hmm. the people with that expertise and work together and learn to speak each other's languages. So I think on a broader level, you know, right. you know, in, in our field, I think the same thing needs to be happening where um, all of the right people with the right expertise are talking to one another and you have a couple of people um, who, who are helping them, who are helping bring them, bring them together, who, who can see the bigger picture. 
We hope that you're enjoying this episode of Speaking of Mole Bio. We wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about the Invitrogen School of Molecular Biology. It's a great educational hub for molecular biology with rich and reliable technical content designed for new and experienced molecular biologists alike. Check it out today at thermofisher.com forward slash ISMB. And now back to our conversation. I have a couple of questions. Um, one is um, in regards uh, the results of your huge uh, project, the proteomics project that you did. And the second question, it's a totally different, is if, if you could uh, talk a little bit more about neuroimaging. I'm very curious to, to know yeah. uh, what, what you're looking for. So for the proteomics project, it's funny because it's, it, as we alluded to earlier, it's splintered into many different projects. But the one thing that we agreed to do together across the 13 companies was that protein GWAS, right? So and we ran um, genome-wide association studies across um, the first 1,500 protein measures that we, we have access to. Um, put that on BioArchive uh, recently, and, and Ben Son uh, from Biogen is the first author on that. Um, overall finding was that we, we, we identified over 10,000 PQTLs, so SNPs influencing protein concentrations, and 85% uh, of those were new. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of you know, biological vignettes that we have in there. We have some new insights into the inflammasome, potential uh, new targets uh, for, for COVID-19 oh, wow. severity. Um, but, but we were also, you know, I was really impressed with um, how much the 13 companies wanted to work together on this. Um, but there was a certain point at which we had to uh, stop collaborating where it, it got into, you know, target discovery for, for diseases that one, you know, that, that, you know, four or five different companies uh, were interested in. At that point, we had to stop and say, mm -hmm. okay, now we go our separate ways and we, we work on our, um, you know, our, our IP that's of, of, of highest interest to us. Um, but but that basically the, the paper that's 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 on BioArchive, mm -hmm. it's 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 laying out the foundation for this project. Here's what we did. Here's an initial PG was, and here's some initial insights. And now you know these data are going to come online uh, to all approved UK biobank researchers in uh, March of 2023. And at that point, they can use that paper as a, you know, well, currently a manuscript, but hopefully eventually a paper as a, as a resource um, or as, as, a, as a sort of a, a touch point for the, the work that they do downstream. So, you know, and we're, obviously we're all doing work downstream. We found, you know, new drug targets for, for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. There's uh, new, new biomarkers for some of the, the drug programs that we have internally based on, you know, one good example is we, we looked at loss of function effects at, on the genetic level. So um, you take all your protein truncating uh, variants across the genome um, that are expected to have a loss of function effect in the protein, and you check to see whether they actually do. And, and when those PTVs, those protein truncating variants, are in cis, um, so, so close to the, the encoded protein, 99% um, of the time, they, they, they are associated with reduced protein, which is consistent with biological loss of function. And the reason that that's important is, great, you can, you can take your in silico loss of function and look at it at the proteomic level and see that there, there does indeed seem to be loss of function of that protein. But there's often some trans signals as well for the very same gene variants. So maybe, you know, uh, loss of function of gene X leads to uh, reduced uh, protein X. But it also 
uh, seems to change uh, concentrations of protein Y and protein Z. So they might be new biomarkers um, or they might tell us about when we actually develop a drug mm -hmm. that downregulates gene X or protein X, this is what's going to happen and that this is what we might want to measure. So that's, that's really cool to me. Um, but yeah, that's just one example. There's just so much you can do with these data and I'm, I can't wait until the academic community um, gets access to it because even, even across 13 farmers, I don't think we, we have the hands to, to do everything we want to do. Chris, uh, the second part of my question was about neuroimaging. So if you could uh, talk about what you see in your neuroimaging, what you're looking for, and what are some exciting results that you can share with us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, another big field, neuroimaging, and you know, lots of different kinds of neuroimaging. So what I specialized in during my PhD was uh, structural neuroimaging, so looking at gray matter um, and diffusion uh, imaging mm -hmm. and looking at white matter organization. Um, lots of exciting things. I'd mentioned earlier that I did uh, my postdoc with the Enigma Consortium, and they, um, they've done a phenomenal job of bringing imaging to very large scale by getting uh, neuroimaging labs from all across the world to process the scans they've already collected in a standardized way and then you know do cross-sectional analyses and then meta-analyze findings together and the, the rationale behind that is if you're to completely retrospectively do a meta-analysis on all the existing published neuroimaging studies it's it's going to be noisy and messy because the the underlying processing protocols are, are, are going to be different across each site so what paul and the enigma consortium was was able to show is that when you you get uh, labs to agree to process their scans uniformly across, you know, tens and in some cases, hundreds of sites, uh, you get a much cleaner signal and you get to see some really cool things about the, the underlying biology of different brain diseases. So uh, in my case, I, I, I led the Enigma epilepsy working group and we found that, you know, there, there were very um, uh, robust um, structural changes, gray matter changes in in the thalamus and in, in the precentral gyrus across a number of different epilepsy subtypes. Um, that wasn't really shown consistently at a level where the p-values were, were very, very uh, low and, and everything looked very sort of solid and robust. So, um, you know, that, that's one exciting thing. I think the Enigma Consortium is still going very strong and, and um, you know, allowing us to do neuroimaging at a scale that we hadn't before because it's expensive, right? So what you saw maybe in the late 90s and, and early 2000s was neuroimaging being done um, on, you know, on maybe you know, 50 cases and 50 controls. And Enigma has enabled it to be, be done on, you know, in some cases, you know, 5,000 cases and 5,000 controls. And then add to that UK Biobank because they're not just doing proteomics in UKB, they're doing imaging as well. Um, they just announced that they're going to do repeat imaging of 60,000 people. So we're going to have, you know, a, a longitudinal neuroimaging study in 60,000 people, the largest in the world. Um, so I guess that, that that's speaking to it on a very high level. Um, but what, what are we actually learning from neuroimaging? Um, you know, qu quite a lot. I think that the, the, the diffusion imaging is helping us get a better grip on white matter organization in epilepsy and schizophrenia, you know, Again, Enigma Schizophrenia showed that white matter microstructural organization is more widely disrupted than maybe people uh, 
previously knew um, in, in schizophrenia. Um, functional neuroimaging, which I didn't do during my PhD, but I've, I've collaborated with folks that, that have expertise in functional neuroimaging. That's going to be critical as well. You know, looking at, at, at disturbances, the different um, functional networks in the brain um, to the bold signals. So, so we're looking at these techniques like global brain connectivity and trying to tie that back to genetics and to omics. So can we identify a signature, you know, um, when somebody goes into a scanner and just, 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 just rests and you have people that might have a certain disease like, like, uh, you know, bipolar disorder and people that, that don't have that disease and, and then look at their resting state connectivity, look at their global connectivity measures, see whether there are differences. And if there are differences, what networks, um, are we seeing those differences in map those back then to, to, to gene expression, potentially proteomics, genetics, and that might actually get us much closer to developing better psychiatric drugs. So lots of exciting developments in neurology. What kind of markers or contrasts that you use for your neuroimaging? And are you looking for something else besides a structure? Yeah. Most of the imaging that I did um, and, and, and have been doing uh, doesn't doesn't require um, markers or tracers, um, but obviously those are those are very important when it comes to PET imaging. So for Alzheimer's disease, again, going back to AD, um, the uh, amyloid PET tracers and tau PET tracers are, are very important to uh, to diagnosis of those illnesses. So you know, in order to actually be uh, diagnosed as someone with Alzheimer's disease. The clinician needs to show evidence of, of, of high amyloid accumulation. And you can either do that with a, a, a spinal tap, which is obviously a pretty nasty, scary procedure, or, or you, can, you can put the patient in a, in, a, in a scanner, a PET scanner, and mm. give them an amyloid PET scan. So that's a that's, um, really helpful technique. And um, there are new PET tracers being developed for, for you know, other, other proteins that might be of interest, CSFR1, to try to see whether we can get at some inflammatory uh, components in the brain. So yeah, yeah, PET imaging, not something that I've personally analyzed, but super, super important um, uh, for diagnostics for neurodegenerative illnesses. I'm curious, what areas um, for molecular biology could you see being implemented in uh, in let's say a study that that you just described, is it um, really around the characterization or even uh, um, deeper understanding of sequences or characterization of of proteins? Um, I, I'm just curious, what areas do you see uh, from like that molecular perspective f for the future? What's needed, or do we have all of the tools that that already? are needed to do that analysis. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we never always have the complete set of tools, um, but but I think that we have a pretty good battery to start developing, um, you know, especially pet tracers. I, I think I think going, you know, stepping away from imaging and going back to, to sort of omics and, and proteomics, I think one, one thing that would be beneficial is um, to figure out the, um, the binding sites of, of certain antibodies that are being employed, uh, you know, uh, in multiplex, like with all link and, and, and figuring out exactly, you know, where, where, where the epitopes lie. So, so whether we can do that, but yeah, those are just some of the things off the top of my head.
and antibodies are getting um, more, more and more. Um, I, I don't want to say complicated, but they're becoming more diverse in how um, people are thinking about them. I, I know the FDA just came out with a few new designations for antibody-based treatments, whether it's bi-specifics or um, even fragment-based uh, treatments. I'm curious for antibodies in particular, do you see that there's more opportunity in the in silico perspective, or like we've seen just a tremendous explosion of um, antibody treatments over the past five years. Is it still something that's absolutely necessary um, to kind of identify through brute force analysis in a laboratory? I know that this is a kind of a, a cheat answer because I'm sitting on the fence, but I think that there's room for both. Um, there's room for right. both. I, I think that I'm seeing, you know, these, you know, antibody treatments are still going to be important, but we're, you know, we're pursuing those kinds of treatments in, in, in parallel with, uh, you know, AS, antisense oligonucleotides, ASOs, SIRNAs. Um, there's lots of different ways you can make a drug these days, which is fantastic. I, I, I really, I'm grateful that I'm coming into drug discovery at the right time where, um, when I was doing my PhD, they, they defined, you know, the druggable genome. And it was a certain number of genes that, you know, you could make a drug against. That's, mm-hmm. I feel like that's less and less relevant because there's, you can, you know, depending on the modality, you can, you can drug a lot of the genome now. And so antibodies are going to still be right. important, but some of these other techniques will be as well. I think, you know, having antibodies versus these synthetic approaches, maybe stepping away from from treatments and going back to actual sort of measurement with, with antibody-based multiplex and optimer synthetic, you know, sort of uh, optimer-based approaches. Again, I think that there's there's room for, for both uh, to play. Um, there's been some really mm-hmm. interesting papers lately that have looked at antibody-based proteomics uh, alongside uh, optimer-based proteomics. And, you know, the, the big advantage of the optimer-based is that they're, they're easy to make and you can, you can measure many more optimers than, than you might be able to measure antibodies um, simultaneously. Um, but what that paper showed, it was from Claudia Langberg, her, her group, uh, Mark Pietzner, is that um, there's value in doing both. You, you get synergistic insights. I think that's actually in the title of the paper, synergistic in, insights from antibody and optimer-based mm-hmm approaches. Um, you know, you, you might be able to get more proteins and better coverage and, and, and tighter CVs with the optimers, but then you might be able to get uh, more specificity um, with, with, with the antibody-based approach. Um, so in an ideal world, yeah. we would be doing both um, at the proteomic level. And in the, in the current world, um, in terms of therapeutics, we're, you know, we're definitely um, using antibodies alongside many other different approaches. As a last question here, um, what has been an important factor for your success in your career? What, what are some tips and tricks that you can give for the new folks uh, that are coming into research and academia, especially that we've mentioned a couple of times during this interview? What are some uh, tri- tips and tricks that you can give uh, to these folks? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I need to think about that. There's, there's so many things I could, uh, could recommend. Um, I, I, I think in terms of what's gone into my success, I think look is always going to play a role. I, I wouldn't want to sound too, uh, egotistical to say that it was all my hard work and all that kind of stuff. I think that, I think that look is always a certain element of being in the right place at the right time. But in terms of practical tips on, on how to sort of maximize success, 
um, find not just uh, prestigious people to work with or supervisors, PIs, but 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 kind and nice people who are going to pass the ladder down to you. So I was lucky that I found those kinds of people in my career, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Thompson being one of them. And then the people that I've worked under in industry have all been, you know, fantastic advocates for me. So that's one thing. Um, make sure that you, you're you always thinking uh, bigger picture and outside the box. It's, it's important to be mm-hmm. an expert in your field. But at a certain point during my postdoc, um, you know, I, I saw this meme and it's it's difficult to describe, you know, verbally, but, but you know, it's better to just show you a picture of it. But it's this big circle and it's like, here you are when you do your undergrad and then your master's, your PhD and your postdoc. And, at, you know, at the, at the outer edge of the circle, there's, there's this tiny little blip. And this is what you've done. Uh, you know, this is what you've contributed to the, the to human knowledge. Um, so, you know, that that was a little bit disheartening. It was funny. I laughed when I saw it, but I also thought, wow, okay, yeah. I'm, <laughs> you know, it's good to be an expert, but at a certain point, I want to take a step back and say, how how is what I'm doing fitting in to what my, my peers are doing in other fields? So always uh, maintaining line of sight to the bigger picture is, um, is, is definitely a, a big factor. That was Chris Whelan, Director of Neuroscience and Data Science at Johnson Johnson. If you're interested in hearing even more of today's conversation, you can view the extended video version of this interview by visiting the URL in the episode notes. And if you'd like, consider sharing something you learned on today's episode with a colleague who might also enjoy the show. This episode was produced by Matt Ferris, Cyra Briganti, and Matthew Stock.